So speaking of the pandemic and everything else, I, I wonder if you could think of the moment last year when you realized, oh no, this COVID thing is gonna be a really big deal. I know the exact date. Mine was March 11th, 2020. I was laying in bed, looking at uh, some things on uh, my Twitter feed, which I, a practice I don't recommend before you go to bed. I was violating my own rule, admit it, uh, confess it. Uh, and I noticed that a uh, tweet had been uh, put out by the NBA that they had just canceled thir- the games for the next 30 days and even canceled a game as people were already in the stadium waiting for the game to start. And I thought, oh my word, this is serious. Maybe you remember when Tom Hanks got COVID. That was another kind of inflection point. You could probably think through when was the moment that you realized, wow, this is gonna be challenging. But my guess is, is even then, you didn't realize how challenging it really was gonna be. All of the dynamics, the issues that we'd have to deal with, one thing after another, or just even quite frankly, what the pressure of this last 18 months has done in terms of surfacing things, helping us to see who we are. It's it's been a revealing season. And that's what hardship does. No matter what kind of hardship it is, it tends to surface things both in us and around us that were there, but when life is a little easier, those things tend to be missed. Over the last couple of weeks, I've been hanging out with some pastors from around the country, just talking and thinking and praying about, so what's next? What, like, what happens now? Where do we go from here? Instead of being kind of in the defensive position, what does it mean to be in the offensive position moving forward? And there's a number of things that are just surfacing growth areas, things of that sort that I'm still processing. But here's one thing that I know, that hardship over the last number of months has tested us in terms of what we really believe. I mean, you can say that you don't have fear, but when you actually really have to battle fear, you can say that you're trusting God for your finances, but when that actually is right in front of you, the question is, does my Christianity really work? And in that respect, hardship is revealing because it shows us what do we actually believe? Like, what works? And you need to know that the book of James is primarily about that intersection between faith and works, between what I believe and how I actually live. And in James chapter three, there's a new word that James introduces for this intersection between what we believe and how we live. And it's the word wisdom. You can think of wisdom as essentially the application of that which you know. And what James is gonna show us here is there's a contrast between two kinds of wisdom. Usually we think of wisdom as a very positive word, you know, biblical truth applied to life, that's true. But James is gonna show us another kind of wisdom that's a wicked wisdom. A wisdom that reveals a heart that's set on the wrong things. So today what I wanna do is unpack this, this contrast between wise words and wicked words, between biblical wisdom and wicked wisdom. So we're gonna look at first, how, is, how does wisdom reveal kind of who we are? That's in verse 13. And then secondly, how can wisdom actually be wicked? And then third, how can our wisdom, again, how I apply what I know to where I live, how can that reflect God's blessing and heavenly wisdom? 
So first, we see in verse 13 this idea of what wisdom reveals. Verse 13 says this, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. So just to remind you where we've been in James, chapter 3, 1 through 12 is all about the tongue. And what James was arguing there was a small member like the tongue can be used in a really powerful and powerfully negative way. James wanted us to know that it's not right when you bless God with one word and then curse people with another word. And he wants you to wrestle with how it is that you use your mouth. But when it comes to wisdom, we find a different application of our words. Wisdom, essentially, is the expression of the words that we use. So verse 13 starts with this question, who is wise and understanding among you? Why does James raise this issue? Who's wise and understanding? It seems that James wants to address the kind of speaking that would characterize someone who is intellectual, Somebody who has knowledge, somebody who's smart, somebody who others might consider to be wise, somebody who by their words has influence, by their words has power. So the, the, the issue here is that when we think of the problem of our words, we might be inclined to sort of limit the application of that idea to somebody who blows up easily or somebody who drops curse words or speaks with aggression, somebody filled with road rage, yells at other people, or who curses others out. That would certainly be wrong. But James has in mind here a different kind of person, a person you might be more familiar with, a person that you actually might be like, and that is a more respectable person, a person who doesn't blow their stack, but they know how to use their tongue in a really wicked way. The kind of person who hides their sinful words with their intellect or their knowledge. But the effect is just as deadly. I trust you know that foolishness doesn't always mean a lack of intelligence. Some really smart people can be really wicked. You can be wicked smart and have it not be a compliment. That's why the second half of verse 13 is really important. It says, by his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. So what James is doing here is helping us to see that there's a a kind of work that's supposed to go along with a faith that has not something to do just with words, but how we apply in regards to wisdom. So he wants our conduct and our words, or our works rather, to be reflective in this wisdom, and this wisdom should have a particular characteristic, and that characteristic is meekness. Meekness, which is power under control, understanding who God is and who I am, and therefore the use of the wisdom or the intellect or the knowledge that God has given needs to be tethered to who God is and who I am. Remember that wisdom is merely the application of what you know to where you live. And the exhortation here towards godly wisdom is connected to good conduct and good works. So wisdom is simply using your knowledge or your intellect for good or, as we'll see in a moment, for bad. So one of the works that James is interested in is not just what do you say, but how do you know what you know and use what you know for the purpose 
of godliness. So this wisdom is revealing. Let me ask you a few questions by way of application. How do you treat people when you clearly know something more than they do on a subject? Or what happens in your heart when people treat you like an expert or defer to your expertise? What happens when your expertise is challenged or questioned or this thought rises within your heart? Do you know who I am? Do you know how many degrees I have? Do you know how long I've studied this? Do you know what I know? Those things, they may not blow up, but they're there. Do you use your knowledge for self-protection or to help others? Or here's another way. Have you found yourself using information as a leverage or maybe as a status symbol? I trust you know that in our society and culture, not only is our possessions status symbols or titles status symbols, but information is a status symbol. To be in the know on something, that's power. And it's really tempting to use that information and let other people know that you know, but they can't know what you know. So James is concerned about a different kind of posture that is disconnected from faith and a wisdom that isn't Godly, in fact, it's quite wicked. And that's what he turns his attention to now in verses 14 and 16. He identifies this thing of wicked wisdom. And as I worked through this text, it was just remarkable to me. Like, this is the water that we swim in. And sometimes we don't even realize it. It's just part of the cultural air that we breathe. Let me show you this. In verse 14, James identifies two sinister motivations and two ways that we hide these motivations. Look at verse 14. But if you have bitter jealousy, there's the first one, and selfish ambition, there's the second one, in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. So we hide it by boasting or being false to the truth. In other words, we, we deny that we would ever be like this, or we deny that we're not like this, or find ways to deflect and put it on somebody else, or we boast like this, no, I'm not like that. So we, we find ways to hide this issue of bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. What do those mean? Bitter jealousy is the Greek word zealos. You probably hear the word zealous there or the word zealot. It's not always used in a negative sense. In fact, when Jesus cleanses the temple, John chapter 2 verse 17 says that Jesus being filled with zeal for God's house chased the money changers out. So there's a right kind of zealousness a right kind of jealousy. But this kind of jealousy is this. It's a jealousy that sees what someone else has and wants for yourself what belongs to another or what you perceive to be valuable that somebody has that you don't. You can think of it as sinful rivalry. Throughout the New Testament, this issue is regularly condemned if you're taking notes, write down Romans 13, 13 or Galatians 5, 20. You'll see the word rivalry in those texts. One commentator describes this word bitter jealousy as selfish motivation, being harsh with some sort of violent fanaticism. It's this motivation that looks at what other people have and you think, why can't I have that? And you begin to think, they shouldn't have it, I should have it. It begins to be threatened by others, thinking that somebody needs to lose in order for you to win. It also results in you being known more for what you're against 
in terms of your positioning. We don't know a whole lot about what we're going to do, but what we know is we're against those people. We're against that business. And whether it's a business or a relationship, even like in, in junior high, you've got groups of kids that form, and they form around who they're not. We're the group that's not like that. We're the group that's against those. Politics. This is just rife through the middle of what it means to even try and advance conversations in the political arena, and sadly, it even affects the church. We're this kind of church because we're not that kind of church. So bitter jealousy, oh, friends, is all over our culture. It's baked into our humanity. Think just even, for instance, of the fall in Genesis chapter 3. Eve looks at the fruit and she's jealous that God has knowledge that she doesn't have. Satan tempts her and says, you'll be like God, which means you're not like God. Don't you want to be like him? And out of a sense of bitter jealousy, she grabs the fruit. She eats it out of a selfish ambition. She wants to get ahead. Adam sees that his wife is now ahead of him in knowledge, and he also, he can't be left behind. And so suddenly out of bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, he partakes. So you see, at the foundation of our humanity are these issues of Selfish ambition and bitter jealousy. What, is, what does selfish ambition mean? Selfish ambition means unrestrained drive for personal success. Ambition at one level, nothing wrong with that. The desire to use your gifts, be a good steward of what God has entrusted to you, there's nothing wrong with that. But when those gifts, when those abilities begin to be about you, or it begins to be associated with strife or contentiousness, that's when things are problematic. It's fascinating that this word is used in the New Testament for this sort of base, sinful motivation that's really self-focused. But before the New Testament was written, the word wasn't used that often. Although in my research, I did discover that it was used in the writings of Aristotle, Interestingly enough, Aristotle used this word selfish ambition to, quote, refer to the narrow partisan zeal of factional greedy politicians. <laughs> Never seen that before, have you? So this is part of humanity. It's not just a part of our culture now. It's always been a part of our humanity. And what James is concerned about here is when people who claim to be followers of Jesus, listen carefully, when followers of Jesus begin to act in a manner that looks exactly like the world when it comes to selfish ambition and bitter jealousy. What James is acknowledging here is something that surely you know. I know it. I feel it. It's so tempting because of the culture in which we live is just to act like everyone else who's living by a completely different value set. Or it may be that in the context in where you work, maybe in the environment of the people that you're in relationship with, or a dynamic of some other context, it's easy to begin to play the office politic game be involved in the sport of backbiting or even information withholding. The fact of the matter is, is that kind of behavior actually can work. <laughs> you can actually grow a business. You can grow relationships. You can actually become pretty popular by order, ordering and orienting your life with that sort of strategy. 
And the warning here is about the possibility of presenting yourself as if you've advanced in terms of your knowledge or that you have greater insight when the real issue underneath is just simple bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. James continues, he says, this is not the wisdom that comes from above, but he describes it as earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. Wow. Earthly. It means it's just a part of the environment in which we live, this godless world, unspiritual. It doesn't reflect the, 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 the heart motivation of a person who's been redeemed by Jesus. And demonic, I mean, James said this before about the tongue, but it means that the actions of human beings can end up serving the priorities of the devil. So his point here is that this orientation, this way of thinking, this way of behaving is contrary to the very heart of God. This kind of wisdom sounds smart. It's initially impressive. The actions associated with it can work. People can get what they want by acting this way. Listen, here's the challenge. Divisiveness, slander, backbiting, grumbling, gossip, posturing, flattery, gamesmanship, and partisan behavior are really effective. It's so tempting to play in what I'll call the dark arts of wicked wisdom. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. The office environment that you're in right now is filled. It's it's full of the dark arts. It's the water cooler conversation, the positioning. It's the withholding of information so that this other group doesn't get ahead. Even whole departments can be that way. Our department does this. We're not going to work with that department. We're not going to do this. And before you know it, you have this selfish ambition, this bitter jealousy that's a part of the environment. Some of you were raised in a home like that where parents were pitting you against one another or you experienced a church that was full of this. And it happens. I've lived long enough to see it take place, not only in culture and society and business, but yes, in the context of the church. I've seen parents try and use the dark arts to manipulate their children. Seen spiritual leaders try and use the dark arts in order to try and get their way. The challenge is that where jealousy, verse 16 and selfish ambition exists, there will be disorder and every vile practice. You see, sin is never static, and the wisdom here doesn't create good fruit. In fact, James describes it like a poison. He says there will be disorder and every vile practice. So it, like, it opens a door. It opens a door to really bad things. The word disorder, same word that's used in chapter one and verse eight of the double-minded man. So a lot of, of instability or a restless tongue. It's, it, nothing is very stable. So listen to me, where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, doesn't matter if it's in a family, if it's in a marriage, if it's in a business, if it's in a church, if it's in a party, if it's in a social group where that happens, it opens the door to all kinds of evil practices. I mean, surely you've had this experience in your life, I have as well, where I dabbled in the dark arts because I was like, hey, I need to do this in order to to, to kind of make my way around this problem, or they did this, so I'm going to do that. They said this, I'm going to say that. And before you know it, you've opened the door, and it's like a runaway train. Maybe you're here, and you're listening, and you're in the middle of a conflict or controversy right now, 
you're a Christian and you're in an environment where everyone around you practices, let me use this term, the dark arts. It's exhausting to try and be a Christian in that environment. We need Christians in those environments, but we need Christians to act like Christians in those environments. We need Christians to respond in a manner that we're going to see at the end of this text and to say, I'm not going to leave this space. I'm going to stay in this space, but I'm not going to be like this space. I'm going to be different than this space and be okay with the implications of what that posture means. Sadly, much of the world operates through jealousy and selfish ambition. And sadly, sometimes the Christian world looks just like it. So if you're a Christian, let me remind you of a few things. First, let me remind you that the gospel means that God treated you graciously in a way that you don't deserve. If you're a Christian, it means that God paid through Christ the atonement for your sins, that you have a new identity and inheritance in heaven. So why in the world would you be jealous of someone when you've been given everything you need for life and godliness? When the Apostle Paul rebuked the Corinthian church because they were puffed up against one another, he says, what do you have that you didn't receive? (laughs) And why do you boast as if you did not receive it? So one of the ways that we combat selfish ambition and bitter jealousy is to be reminded of what we have received in the context of the gospel. And then secondly, Christian, let me remind you about the temptation to assimilate into a culture marked by selfish ambition and bitter jealousy. Can I caution you? Be careful who you look up to. Just because your boss has been successful, be sure that her ways of doing her leading or his ways of orchestrating that unit fit with your value set. They may be successful, but you may not want their marriage. There's business leaders who grew great, amazing businesses whose personal lives were a disaster. Be careful who you listen to. Be careful who you model your behavior after. Jealousy and selfish ambition are so popular. They work. They work. You can advance your career that way. You can climb the corporate ladder only to find it leaning against the wrong building. Peter says this about Jesus. When suffering, remember this, for to this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was there deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. And when he suffered, he didn't threaten, but continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. Some of you are listening to this message today and you need to hear this because you're right in the middle of deep challenges and conflict. And can I just remind you, be like Jesus. Be just like Jesus. So James warns us about the wicked wisdom that we could partake in, that wisdom is revealing. Here's the third thing. There's a heavenly wisdom that needs to be embraced. Look at verses 17 and 18. But the wisdom that is from above, so it's a heavenly wisdom, not of this world, it's from above, it has these characteristics. What is it? Well, first, it's pure. 
That word pure is connected to the word holy. It's a wisdom that reflects the heart and the character of God so that it's from above, which means there's a quality about this person's words and actions that point to another world. And so here's the vision that you, in your way in which you talk and act and the integration between faith and the world in which you live, that people would look at you and ask the question, you're not like anybody else in this office. Why? You don't play in this game. Why? Why don't you go there when everybody else goes there? They're gossiping about you, but you won't gossip about them. They're slandering you, you won't slander them. Why? That's the question that should be asked. As opposed to you inviting someone to come to Easter and someone says to you, you're a Christian? (laughs) How can you be a Christian? Like You talk like the rest of us. That's not good. Peaceable. The idea is somebody who does their best to make peace. Now, you want to be careful because it doesn't mean peace at any price, nor does it mean conviction-less living. It means what Paul says in Romans, as far as it depends upon you, live at peace with everyone. There's some people that they're, they're impossible to live at peace with, and you're not responsible for that. <clears throat> but what you are responsible, as much as it lies within you, Gentle. Think of this as considerate and kind. The opposite would be harsh and angry. It's a perspective that I'm genuinely concerned for the interests of other people. It's just the exact opposite of selfish ambition. Selfish ambition says, I don't care about anybody but me. An email comes out or an announcement is made, and instead of the first question being, well, what about me? What about my department? What about my budget? What about my stuff? What about my 401k? What about my, 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 my? Instead of that being, which is the normal operating mindset of most people in the world, that the inclination of a person who is gentle is to be concerned about the effects on others. Do you realize how otherworldly this is? Like, these people will stick out so clearly because our world and culture is not like this. Next, reasonableness. Oh, we need reasonable people. A willingness to be persuaded, as opposed to a willful, arrogant disposition. Have you ever run into somebody that they're not only never wrong, they can't even consider the possibility that they might be wrong? A willingness to be entreated. Again, this doesn't mean wishy-washy, like you believe this thing one day and this thing another day. No, it means an understanding of who I am and I, I, I have a good anthropology. I understand the sinfulness of mankind and that I could be wrong and I often am. Humbly considering the possibility and a desire to learn. Next, full of mercy and good fruit. The orientation of their words are pointing towards the treatment of others. Like full of mercy, similarly as gentle, but concern for our neighbor not just concerned about how this affects me. And then finally, impartial and sincere. These words should be taken together. Heavenly wisdom is consistent with people regardless of their status or their background or their group or their history. This person, their yes is yes and their no is no. You don't have to worry if they're saying one thing to one group and another thing to another one. Some of you are playing in the kind of the dark arts of you shade it just a little bit with your boss, but with the rest of everybody else, you're like, yeah, well, it's kind of like this. And you think you're like the intermediary. Really what you are is fickle. 
You kind of bounce back and forth, or one person comes to you and you're like, well, I don't know if I'm so agree with that, and the other person comes to you like, oh, I surely agree with that, and you just start kind of playing both sides of the ledger. Biblical wisdom is impartial and sincere. You don't have to worry if you're quoted because your words are clear and they're not partial. So if you're a follower of Jesus, there's something about this list that just makes you go, yes, that's what true godliness is. There's also part of this list that, honestly, you look at it, I'm sure you feel the same way, like, oh, Lord, help me. Because I see lots of ways that I'm not like this. And I feel the temptation to play the dark arts game. Oh, yeah? You want to play that? I can do that. And we're back to playground, schoolyard, junior high activity. Well, they said this, so I'm going to say that. And they wrote this, or I wrote this. And yet James says there's a kind of behavior that fits with what it means to be a follower of Jesus. The text ends with this. A harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. It's sort of like a, a proverbial statement. Like there's a harvest of righteousness that's going to be given to you for those who sow in peace and for those who are willing to, to make peace. So instead of disorder and every vile practice, there's this beautiful harvest of, relation, of, of righteousness. So you have a, a business or a home or a church or a small group or a friend group, and there's just flourishing that's taking place because selfish ambition and bitter jealousy aren't a part of the equation. I've spoken a lot to Christians. If you're here today and you're not yet a Christian, how does this relate to you? I've just described to you how the world works. It's, it's an example of just how broken the world is. And you may have found yourself over the last year clamoring for self-protection, clamoring, worried about me and what's going to happen to me. And it may be that even in that, you got a hold of what you wanted. And when you got a hold of it, you realized how you got there. Like you sold your soul for that thing. You acted in a way that just you're not proud of. And it may be that God uses James 3 to have you ask this very important question. Where did that come from? The Bible's answer is it came from a heart that's set on the wrong things, pursuing the wrong agenda. And the hope of the gospel is this, that God comes to rescue people who make a mess of their life by following their hearts the wrong direction. It may be that the season could open the door for you to understand your need to have Jesus take control and to change you from the inside out. I hope you'll do that. To those of you that are Christians, can I remind you that Jesus rescued you from you? He rescued you from the dark arts behaviors. He rescued you from manipulating your kids or your spouse. He, he rescued you from using harsh words to try and get what you want. He, he, he rescued you from playing the office politics because that job is so important. You're redeemed. That job isn't that important. Sacrificing your integrity or giving up your testimony for that promotion, keep the promotion. Take it. I'd rather have Jesus. That's what James is calling you to you see, every day there's an opportunity for us to apply biblical wisdom or wicked wisdom. And the question we have to ask ourselves is, when pressure comes, what's going to come out? And James invites us to be a different kind of people in our words and actions 
And that when the pressure is on to demonstrate that faith works, and it works with godly wisdom. Lord Jesus, I can only imagine both the number of opportunities that we've all had to get off target in this domain in the last year. And there's still more to come. So we pray that for those of us who are Christians that you'd help us to see the way in which your grace empowers us to be a different kind of people. Lord, I pray today for brothers and sisters who are in the middle of challenging conflict and difficult circumstances and hard press. Lord, I pray that they would be able to model what it looks like to be just like Jesus. So encourage them today, Lord. You love them enough to give this message in the middle of this moment. And then, Lord, for others who are kind of on the line of dabbling into some arenas of behavior, Lord, would you just pull us back and remind us Keep trusting the one who keeps us trusting. So help us, Lord. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.